Any further notices or announcements? If not, the gentleman from Harnett, Representative Lewis, is recognized for motion. Mr. Speaker, pursuant to House Joint Resolution 1101, I move the House adjourn to reconvene Tuesday, November 27th at 12 o'clock noon, subject to the standard stipulations set forth in Rule 15.1 and in honor and memory of Glenn Brewer Jack. You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week, and with me are Colin Campbell, Lauren Horsch, Andy Spey, and Will Doran. And session is over. Uh, we want to talk about what the biggest takeaways from session uh, has, have been, what they accomplished, what they didn't accomplish, uh, what bills lived and died, uh, and what it all means for the elections uh, since in uh, an election year session that's pretty much what a lot of it is is about, is posturing for the upcoming elections. Um, so let's get right into it. Um, Colin, do you want to start us off? What do you think uh, is the the biggest uh, takeaway from session? What did they uh, What did they get done? Uh, well, obviously the the budget was the big uh, thing on the agenda this year, and we've we've talked about that in past episodes. But I'd say uh, a lot of this. Um, session was sort of set by uh, the, the tone at the very first press conference that was held. Uh, during the press conference a couple days before the start of session, uh, one of the reporters asked uh, House Speaker Tim Moore and Senate Leader Phil Berger, any plans you guys got to take more powers away from the governor this session? And the answer was they laughed and they said, uh, does he still have any? Uh, if you've got any ideas for powers we, he still has, uh, let us know. And um, so apparently they found a lot of powers that he still had that they could try to take away from him. So it ranged from everything from uh, whether he could appoint uh, community college board members in some county somewhere, uh, that power was taken away, to uh, whether there's uh, what, what powers he has when there's a U.S. Senate vacancy um, to, as far as you know, filling someone filling with somebody from the same party, but that someone being nominated by the party and not just somebody with a Republican registration or a Democratic registration. Uh, and then this week, uh, they went a little bit further with the constitutional amendments, uh, taking away his ability to appoint to the elections board, uh, changing his role in uh, filling judicial vacancies. Uh, those will all be on the ballot in November. Uh, voters will get to decide whether he keeps those powers or not. Uh, but then the uh, sort of undersold piece of the uh, elections board amendment is also uh, changing the way boards and commissions work, uh, essentially giving the le legislature more control over uh, appointing those after some lawsuits uh, over who got to pick which board members for things, boards that most of us haven't heard of. Um, and then uh, the next to last day of session on uh, Thursday was a uh, banner day for sticking it to the governor. Uh, there was several uh, nominations that he'd made to state boards well over a year ago uh, that were up for votes, and uh, several of them were voted down, some for reasons that were cited, some for reasons that legislators refused to tell us as many times as we uh, asked them in different ways uh, why uh, certain individuals being appointed to the State Board of Education or a judicial seat uh, were not qualified and got voted down by Republicans. They wouldn't tell us on a couple of counts. Um, so that leaves the governor with uh, not his people on the boards that he wanted, even though he's been in office for about a year and a half now, um, and had appointed these folks a, a long time ago. So uh, they they looked for ways to stick it to the governor, and they found quite a few. And if voters pass this constitutional amendment, uh, can legislators just 
appoint members to all these boards, uh, or is it not that simple? It's a little bit more convoluted. So the language in the Constitution basically talks about um, legislators being able to appoint members to commissions and boards created by the legislature. So that could be interpreted a few different ways. Um, legislators are arguing it's just sort of uh, clarifying uh, the way things are done now in the wake of some of these lawsuits between uh, the governor and the legislature. Uh, governors, uh, former governors, in fact, of both parties, uh, we had a story from the Charlotte Observer today uh, about some very negative reaction from uh, former Republican governors, uh, Jim Martin and Pat McCrory, who feel like this is really uh, a major step in, in taking power away from the governor uh, and they're therefore opposing this thing. Uh, but I think what would ultimately happen uh, would be uh, when the legislature comes back in late November, which they are planning to do, which is a little bit unusual. Normally they get done in, in this time of year and they don't come back for the rest of the year, at least not without a special session. They're coming back uh, in late November uh, with the ex express goal of uh, coming up with laws that sort of implement these constitutional amendments that they pass. So with this thing with the boards and commissions, voters might approve this, and then the legislature would still have the opportunity to come in and say, okay, State Board of Education, we're going to handle that, and it's going to be half the Senate, half the House, or, um, you know, Utilities Commission, Industrial Commission, whatever it may be, um, they could then sort of implement this stuff once it's in the Constitution. But it's, for now, it's a little bit vague. And I will note, too, that uh, the language that voters are going to be voting on for this particular constitutional amendment is largely focused the wording on having a nonpartisan or bipartisan board of elections, which is a component of it, um, but it doesn't really get into the whole concept of taking power from the governor, giving it to the legislature. So most voters might be voting essentially to do that. They may not know that that's what they're doing unless they've done their research in advance on what the uh, amendment does and doesn't do. And Lauren, it, it, Cooper also became the uh, uh, grand champion of vetoes in, in this recent session with, what, 23 vetoes now yes. in his time he, as he governor? Yes, since, well, this entire biennium so far, because we are coming back in November, y'all, don't get too comfortable. There's always some lawmaking to do. Uh, but yeah, Cooper had 23 vetoes this biennium. Um, he had the most any governor has issued in one day with seven, which was, I do believe, this past Monday, whatever day that was. I can't remember anymore. Um, but, you know, the previous record was set by uh, Bev Perdue, uh, who had 19 vetoes, and 11 of those vetoes were overridden by the General Assembly. Um, looking at it right now, um, I just checked the chart before we started. Of the vetoes that Governor Cooper has issued, the General Assembly has not been able to override five of those. Um, and two are from his most recent veto binge um, on Monday, um, and those were sent to House Rules. They might not ever come back up. Uh, Speaker Moore today said that there's just no real need for them to override those. There's no appetite for it right now. They're not of huge consequence um, to state policy or state law, so they're kind of just letting them sit. Other things they did not override include um, a game night game nights for nonprofits, um, and then a lot of uh, longtime listeners will remember the garbage juice in a snowblower b bill. Um, as I finally well, remember when you explained that concept to Clay Aiken on this very podcast. I do, too. <laughs> I do, too. Um, and then um, the legal notice bill, which would, uh, at that point, it was a statewide bill um, that would allow um, local cities and counties to put their legal notices that would usually go into a newspaper online. And that has since been changed to just a local bill for Guilford County, but other counties have expressed interest. I know um, Rockingham County has wanted to get on 
get in on that action, um, which is an interesting twist because the Board of County Commissioners has um, some relatives of Senate Leader Phil Berger on it. I have a question. Is yeah. there a reason that it's a local bill just for Guilford County? Uh, Yes. So Senator Trudy Wade, um, who is the Republican from Guilford County, uh, really wanted this bill. She's really been kind of championing this through the process. She's wanted it for a while. She has had an ongoing disagreement. I'm not going to say feud, but I did just say that um, with the Greensboro News and Record. Um, and they are currently suing over this legislation. Uh, but yes, there's just been some bad feelings between the two. I had wondered if there was some anti-media sentiment in that bill, but uh, thank you for clearing that up. You're welcome, Andy. Yeah, it's interesting. The uh, whole legal notices issue has kind of divided the Republican Party because there are some uh, Republican legislators who are uh, fairly strongly against uh, that proposal and have tried to pass more compromised versions of it, have worked closely with the NC Press Association. And then there's some that are uh, very excited to see that power go away, sometimes for Sort of animosity-oriented reasons. There are others that just feel like that's it's a waste of money to have to put legal ads in a newspaper that they don't think people are reading. Well, and even going off of that, we saw for those of us who attended the North Carolina Press Association dinner, Representative Cody Henson, who's a Republican from Transylvania County, he actually got an award for his no vote on the legal notices bill, and you know for going around and talking with people who had you know concerns about this bill and his district so i mean yes you are right it's divided a lot so and some republicans are getting awards for their their work yeah, on and that that's ultimately why it had to be a local bill was that there weren't the votes there to override the veto on the statewide version but local bill doesn't go to the governor so it's a lot easier to get those through mm -hmm. so cooper's had a few victories on some of the more minor issues but um what's the most consequential thing that he lost on other than his own powers i guess um this session what did he veto that got overridden that was a big deal uh, i mean the budget i guess would be the big one um he wanted you know more spending an end to the uh tax cuts got to go into effect next year uh that of course uh did not happen um trying to think of the other big vetoes uh he pushed against the farm bill over the provisions about uh hog waste and nuisance lawsuits um, he pushed out against the, I guess this could be considered a veto, uh, victory for Cooper on his veto. He was overridden on this early voting thing that we talked about, I guess, last week or the week before, um, which would change early voting hours so that they had to be uniform across counties, wouldn't have voting the Saturday before the elections. But then yesterday, and Lauren, you wrote about this. Yeah, uh, yesterday we got a fun little surprise bill in Senate rules, which brought back the last Saturday before the election early voting time period. So what counties can now do if this passes, this did just get sent to the governor, I think, last night, early this morning. Um, you know, counties can set hours to vote on that day from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., I do believe. But counties can also opt to extend that out to 5 p.m. if they need it. Um, so you do see that, you know, high voting day come back into play. Yeah, I think there's still some concerns from Democrats on that, that they think that uh, some counties will have to spend more money on early voting or have to reduce the number of sites to match the 7 to 7 uh, weekday hours that are required across sites. But there is a uh, exemption for yeah, one county. I'm not going to ever say this right, so please correct me. Orca-coke? Ocracoke. Ocracoke. Sorry, guys. Although Orca-coke would make sense because isn't Orca a type of whale? Do yes, they have those is. off Ocracoke? I don't know. Anyway, so there there were issues voting there because they had an early voting site, I think, located on a barrier island. Yeah, it was on the island. island. So it had different – it's always had different hours than the one on the mainland. So they did um, write in an exemption 
to allow them to be able to offer different hours on the island versus the mainland. Yeah, so you're going to get a three-hour ferry ride yes. to vote or something like that. And, and I think we also need to mention that the, the Saturday early voting is only in 2018. So that might be an issue we see come back up in the long session in 2019 is whether or not they can make that last Saturday before the election early voting time period a permanent fixture or just mm-hmm. – year by year. But yeah, that might be one of the few situations where Cooper said, I think this is bad. And then the Republicans mm-hmm. are like, eh, it might be bad. Let's fix it. This early voting thing was one of the poster children, I guess, for um, process and uh, transparency. Um, the, the original bill that got rid of this, the final Saturday of voting kind of popped up out of nowhere and went and went through very quickly. Um, and then this one kind of came out of nowhere too. Do we have any idea of like why they decided to reverse reverse I think so. What I've been hearing sort of on background from a few of my sources is that it's a legal thing. Um, They rolled out, I think part of the reason for rolling out the early voting bill initially so quickly was they didn't want to have to vet it so that they were hearing about uh, voting trends, particularly with respect to minority voters, uh, because they wanted to be able to say, we passed this bill mm-hmm. and we had no idea how it might affect African-American voters, whether they use this last day of voting or not. In the pr- what little process they had, there were some efforts by, I think, Democracy NC uh, to get those numbers out there and say, here's exactly how many African-American voters use that last day of early voting so it disproportionately affects them. Um, and because they were able to do that before the vote, uh, there was concerns that uh, this provision might not pass legal muster because uh, lawmakers wouldn't really be able to plead ignorance on this front. It's, um, it's so kind of they, alarming that the, that uh, the strategy in passing laws is to try to know as little as possible before. Yeah, uh, that's become the standard in redistricting. Pleading because, ignorance. Yeah. yeah, because so much of the redistricting cases are uh, what did you know and when did you know it in terms of the impact on different voting groups? Um, so you saw that a little bit this session with the efforts to redraw judicial districts in certain counties. So when Senator Dan Bishop was rolling out his proposal to redraw districts for the courts in Mecklenburg County, he said he he had not had the staff draw up what's termed a stat pack, which is basically the thing that tells you how do these districts vote in previous elections, uh, what percentage of this district is African-American, that sort of thing. He's just saying, I just looked at the population numbers, tried to draw districts that were evenly drawn so that if someone sues over it, he can say, you know, Africa, uh, minority voting trends, past election results didn't factor into my thinking at all. I was just, it just happened to draw these districts this way. Right. I mean, in the background for all this is that there's a court case that threw out the old voter ID law that said that it targeted African-American voters. And they had all kinds of uh, records that showed that they had asked for information uh, about what voting practices were used by various groups. So there was tons of information that the judges had to look at. So I guess now they're, uh, they want to have less information in order to um, be able to say that they weren't biased against any. Yeah, they don't group. subscribe to the, uh, the NNO's old slogan of knowing is better. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what else, you guys? What other uh, big accomplishments, big misses? Uh, what else happened this session that we should talk about? I think it's just kind of worth noting that the, the Republicans were pretty successful in, uh, you know, in kind of posturing for the November elections. Like we talked about earlier, they did some things kind of on the defensive, uh, giving big raises to state employees and to teachers. Obviously, those issues have been kind of a, a talking point of Democrats in the past. So um, it was probably a defensive victory for the Republicans to be able to 
to give some pretty generous raises in the budget and be able to tout that in their campaigns, you know, when they go back home to their districts and, you know, start campaigning for office again. And then on the offensive, uh, you know, getting all of these uh, constitutional amendments on the ballot, which I think a lot of people see as, you know, a, you know an effective way to, to increase voter turnout among some conservative circles, you know, with the protecting the right to hunt fish, instituting voter ID laws, things like that. Um, and, you know, obviously we'll, we'll see how those, you know, actually turn out in November. But I, I think a lot of people, you know, believe that those will, you know, have the effect of, you know, encouraging more Republican voters to, to come to the polls in November in a year when they might have been a little discouraged because of national politics about, you know, the state of the party. Um, so we've got six constitutional amendments that are going to be on the ballot, um, dealing with everything from the vacancies, which filling vacancies in judicial seats uh, and cutting Roy Cooper's power uh, to uh, the uh, protecting crime victims and giving crime victims more rights. One of the um, last bills to pass, uh, one of the last constitutional amendments to pass was a cap on income taxes. And Andy, that kind of um, looked like it, it might be at an impasse just shortly before it finally did pass. So what happened there? Right. And I waved at you uh, because it's worth noting that uh, the governor can't block these constitutional amendments from the ballot. So he, if you look at it and, or if you didn't hear uh, those amendments under the things he vetoed, that's because he doesn't have the power to do so. Um, but and right. they have to pass with super majorities anyway. Correct. Um, so. Correct. Uh, so it's sort of a moot point. Uh, with the tax cap amendment originally, so right now your effective uh, income tax is 5.49%. That will, I think, fall to 5% next year. Yeah, under 5. the 5.25%. 5.25% yeah. next year under the Republican uh, budget. But what this amendment wants to do is uh, lower the cap on or strengthen the cap uh, that's on the Constitution. Currently, the North Carolina Constitution says that the legislature can't uh, raise your income tax above 10 percent. Uh, at first, Republicans wanted to keep it. They wanted to change the Constitution to 5.5 percent, which so basically they couldn't raise it at all at that point. Right. Then, they yeah. wanted to put something that was uh, virtually permanent onto the state constitution saying that your taxes would never go up again. Uh, the problem with that is uh, some Republicans wouldn't go along with it. They struggled to get the votes, and uh, most Republicans weren't, uh, g didn't go public with their criticisms of it, uh, but behind the scenes we heard that they were concerned they couldn't generate the type of revenue they would need in the case of a recession or an economic downturn. Uh, so. Uh, what was it, Wednesday? Uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, they changed their proposal and made it 7%. And at first it appeared like there was going to be a fight between the House and the Senate. The House changed it from 5 to 7 uh, with, you know, votes falling along party lines, Republicans uh, in support, Democrats against. But then Colin and I uh, met with some legislators, uh, some senators on Wednesday who said, I think, I believe one of them said, hell no, was the uh, the answer I got from Senator Jerry Tillman when I asked him if he would support five and a half uh, or seven percent instead of five and a half. Spoiler, he did support seven percent. So did the he? hell no turned into a, 
if Phil Berger told me to vote yes, I'll vote yes. See, I so the person I spoke with, the senator I spoke with, was Tommy Tucker out of Union County. Yeah, and these are both the two sponsors of the original tax cap bill. And he was equally displeased, saying that he would not support it. And I don't think he yeah, did. He yeah, voted no. did. Yeah, he voted no. Yeah, he voted no. So uh, all that said, the Senate ended up going along with the 7%, and that'll be on the ballot uh, as sort of this compromise. Uh, a lot of people think that they're putting this on there just to, as you mentioned, uh, generate interest from Republicans who, you know, they don't have uh, a big name. You know, there's no governor, there's no senator. You know, you might have a congressman here and there, but um, there are a few things that sort of get you excited. But if you put, you know, a max tax is what they're calling it, a uh, constitutional amendment on the ballot, and, you know, you talk about hunting and fishing and, fo- you know, photo uh, voter ID, then, you know, people may come out. So... That's where we are. Uh, so what did lawmakers talk about that? What did, Lauren, did you want to say something Well, I'm just going to say I think they, not just the tax cap, but just on constitutional amendments in general, the lawmakers were very conscious about what they were doing. So you saw them pass in a certain order because the constitutional amendments will appear in that order that they passed. Um, so you will see voter ID as the last constitutional amendment on the ballot. And I think that's... I think that's a way to drive people to read the entire ballot because, you know, it'll be long. Uh, <laughs> but they want you to get all the way to the bottom of that ballot. So I think they, they, were, they were very conscious of what they were doing while they were passing these amendments. And there's no – I mean, this is getting in the weeds a little bit, but it is kind of important. You know, in, in other uh, – often you see, you know, Proposition 1, propose, but in this case, there's not going to be anything to signify what people are telling you to vote for or against other than you need to read the whole thing, mm-hmm. right? So that, that would be correct. Yeah. So, so I, I wonder if this is going to lead to campaigns where groups on either side are basically going to say, you know what, just vote it for all of them or vote, just vote against all of them. Um, I suspect you would see the Democratic Party telling you to vote no on everything. Um, they, may, they might support the victims rights thing, but I think the other five, I would suspect they would be uh, in opposition to. Um, Although a few Democrats did vote for the hunting and fishing thing, even as they said, I don't think this will actually do anything because I don't think hunting and fishing rights are actually under attack. Which we may look into at some point. Yeah. Uh, but I think, Jordan, your point is right. Like, I don't know how many flyers or mailers or commercials you'll see with, you know, quick, pithy, vote yes or no or anything like that. It, it's it's going to be nuanced. In 2012, what, it was Amendment 1, right? Mm-hmm. It was what, so why, why is it different this, this year? Did anybody know? Um, I think Amendment 1 was, it wasn't necessarily how it was termed formally, but it just became how just it became was known. That, okay. Yeah. This year, they may be numbered on the ballot, but I've, so far there's not been any, uh, well, number 3 is this, number 4 is uh, that. Okay. It's just kind of, we, we have to refer so to the judicial vacancy. Got to look like. Yeah. We, we may see some think tanks mm-hmm. come out, like Civitas and AFP, Americans for Prosperity, yeah, they've already supported the tax, tax cap. cap. Yeah. I don't know who would... I'm trying to think of a big organization that would support maybe the hunting or hunting probably. I think fishing. the NRA, NRA and there's a like yeah. group called Sportsmen's Federation okay. or something that has been supporting that. So they'll probably put some muscle behind that. And there's a the group that's originally pushed the crime victims uh, amendment has pushed it in other states and in other states has spent a lot of money. Yeah, uh, they had a so. giant group of lobbyists um, in committee the last couple of weeks uh, to push that through. So uh, apparently, it's some fairly wealthy person in another state who thinks it's very very important that all states have this. So he's putting a lot of money yeah, behind he it. He had a family member who was killed, uh, I believe. 
You know what surprised me is how much that bill would cost and uh, just to implement. Wasn't it you or Lauren who wrote about it? Yeah, there was a fiscal note about it, and it was like – Tens of millions, or around about it was kind of it was a, like thirty. It was like thirty million, but it wasn't a fiscal note from the General Assembly. It was a fiscal note, I do believe, from the administrative office of the courts. Yeah, that's right. So. Yeah, they, they yeah, were the ones. Yeah, so because because there's there's some nuances there. A legislator has to ask for a fiscal note to be made on a specific bill, and to my knowledge, no lawmaker had requested that fiscal note on Marcy's Law. So the Office of Administrative Courts kind of went through and looked at it, and I think they came up with $30 million. Yeah, I know the court system had voiced some concerns about how this might affect the process. Would it slow down court proceedings because you have more uh, requirements to notify the victims and allow them to be present at the, the various court hearings? Um, but the same court officials didn't really come out fervently in opposition to it. It was just, hey, be aware there may be some consequences, and it could have an impact in a not super great direction. Will, you alluded to this a little bit, but what uh, uh, what are we going to see in the campaign ads um, against and for candidates for legislature that comes out of this session? I, I suppose um, Republicans uh, cheering the raises that they gave to public employees. What, what else do you think we'll see? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think they'll really be championing that. Um, it, you know, it costs a lot of money in the budget to, to give these big raises. And I, you know, I think a lot of people want, you know, their voters to know that, you know, hey, despite what you might have been hearing from the Democrats, you know, about teacher pay and all that, we're giving them raises. Uh, Democrats, on the other hand, will be like, hey, we still rank 37th in the country in teacher pay. And, you know, we'll be probably slightly better next year, but still below average. Um, and, uh, you know, they'll point to, uh, we've already seen it from uh, Governor Cooper saying that, you know, uh, even though state employees did get some pretty generous raises in the budget that passed the legislature, he says that his budget would have uh, given higher raises to something like three quarters of state employees. So about a quarter of state employees do better under the legislative plan, whereas three quarters would have done better under Cooper's plan, according to Cooper. Um, so I think you're going to see a lot of, you know, kind of arguments like that from the Democrats. Uh, saying, you know, like, it, you know, it, probably not acknowledging that the Republicans gave raises, but saying, you know, hey, we had we had plans to to do even even more. Um, and the Republicans shot those down. So I, I, I think that'll probably be the theme of a lot of the fights. And then obviously, you know, a lot of these places have, you know, little local issues um, uh, because, as we know, all politics is local. Um, and so, you know, there will be some some races that are dominated by the local stuff. But all right. Well, um, let's take a break and come back with headliner of the week because I think it might be a long one. We have a lot of people who are leaving uh, the General Assembly, so I have a feeling we're going to be hearing about some of those folks. Uh, we'll take a quick break, and please stay with us. Melissa from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school, but I still can't afford to put food on our table. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Headliner of the week. 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 Who's hot? 
And we're back, and now it's time for Headliner of the Week, where we decide who the most important person in this week's news will be. Uh, will Doran, who's your Headliner of the Week? Um, I'm going to go with Attorney General Josh Stein. Uh, obviously, we've spent this whole time talking about the legislature, but while all of these end-of-session uh, issues have been wrapping up, he has also been filing a lot of lawsuits of his own. Um, he's uh, gotten into trouble with some Republican legislators in the past who uh, gave him some budget cuts because they were you know, a little dissatisfied with uh, the way that they see him as maybe being a, a bit of an activist with his lawsuits. But he has not slowed down. Uh, this week he filed a lawsuit um, objecting to a decision that allowed uh, Duke Energy to basically pass some costs of uh, you know, some of its cleanup and other operational costs onto consumers. Um, and so he's, he vowed to take that to the state Supreme Court and fight against that. Um, then he also is joining a, a national lawsuit uh, against the, the, uh, the huge national story on immigration and the detention centers and the family separation policy of the Trump administration. He's trying to figure out if any of these children who have been taken from their parents are being uh, stored in North Carolina anywhere. Obviously, we have several uh, large military bases here, and uh, you know there's been... There's been news that the Trump administration wants to use the military bases to, to house these children um, after they're taken from their parents, and so he's suing over that as well. Um, so making headlines in a couple different ways. Okay. Josh Stein in the hat for Headliner of the Week, Attorney General. Uh, Andy Spay, who's your Headliner of the Week? You know, this being these being the dog days of summer, I'm going to go with... I don't uh, think they are, actually. I think uh, 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 former Governor Pat McCrory... Uh, According to this headline, growls that his successor dissed his dog. What does that mean? That means... This is a story from uh, uh, our Charlotte Observer colleagues. That's right. Uh, that means, and it came out, I think, last week, uh, right before the weekend, uh, after we had recorded. Um, someone gave uh, Pat McCrory a metal sculpture of his dog, Mo, McCrory's dog. And they kept that at the governor's western residence in Asheville. Uh, McCrory learned last week that uh, the Cooper administration had that had that statue removed, uh, and it is now quote in an attic somewhere. McCrory told fans uh, of his radio show. Uh, he said, "quote I haven't asked for much from the governor, but man, don't disrespect my dog and the work and the work he did to save other dogs." I'm kind of making a mockery of it, but it does upset me. So, and what is the work that Mo McCrory did to help other dogs? You know, it doesn't say, but I, I assume that uh, you know he did lots of digging into uh, <laughs> puppy mill uh, issues. It's yeah. watchdog reporting, right? Yeah, and uh, found some abuses. Um, but uh, did, although he didn't succeed in getting that puppy mill bill no, passed, right? Because that, that was the what got, gave the Michael Speciali quote about how he if he kicked a dog was that exercise, and they voted down the bill. Mm-hmm. So this it was a big cause of um, the first lady, right? That's right. Yeah. Puppy getting rid of puppy mills and cracking down on puppy mills. Yeah. Right, and I do believe we heard of uh, Snickers amongst legislators legislators uh, back when they were trying to push that bill, uh, which never went through. Um, so that's my headliner, Pat McCrory, uh, defender of statue dogs, which I will say, I looked at the photo of the statue. It looks more like a piece of yard art uh, than it looks like, a, you know, a cement. Yeah, you know, it would, uh, it, it's not a perfect representation of Mo McCrory himself. It's kind of a, 
if you wanted to buy a statue of a dog, that's what it would look like. And in fact, after the story ran, a source sent me a photo of a almost identical statue on North Person Street in Raleigh, just a block from the governor's mansion in front of a veterinarian's office. The veterinarian's name turns out Dr. Patrick McCrory. Deep state conspiracy or not, you be the judge. I think so. I think so, Colin. That said, while the legislature picks on McCro- uh, picks on Cooper, Cooper picks on McCrory. Oh, all right. He's my headline. Pat McCrory and Mo McCrory, the late Mo McCrory. I right? think he's still alive. Oh, oh not late. Okay. <laughs> Don't kill Never the mind. dog off. Never mind. Don't bad kiss enough. my dog. Bad enough that the, bad enough that the statue's gone. Okay. Right, statue's good. in loving memory. Glad, the dog that the, still alive. glad that Mo is still with us, even if the statue is in an attic. <laughs> all right. So Pat McCrory and Mo McCrory. In the hat for headliner of the week, Lauren Horsch, who's your headliner? So I know earlier I said I wouldn't do anything about a retiring lawmaker, but I was thinking about it, and John Blust really has an encyclopedic knowledge of movies. So John Blust is my headliner. He is retiring, um, but really I'm bringing him up because he just brought up so many movies and so many floor speeches this week, like yesterday or Wednesday, he was talking about Animal House and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Apparently, he's Mr. Smith in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington was the theme there. Yes. And today, he brought up some movie with Henry Fonda called, like, Spencer's Mountain. And I thought I'd seen a lot of movies, but that man just, I want to see his movie library because it's just, it must be insane. Um, So I'm just going to throw... You know, Representative John Blust in there. He's been known as the process guy, but he's also apparently the movie guy. So I photoshopped him into these, some of these movie posters. If you want to check my Twitter and be entertained it's, by my terrible Photoshop jobs, don't 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 <laughs> count yourself short, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> they were bad. I'm sorry, guys. They were bad. I don't I actually have, have Photoshop on my laptop because I work for a company that doesn't want to give me that. I also told him to do the exact thing he did. So. Um, but yeah, let's throw Joe, John Blust in there. We will miss his filibusters on the floor, but I think he might enjoy some time away from the legislature. All right, John Blust and his movie references uh, in the hat for headliner of the week. Colin Campbell, who's your headliner? All right, I'm also going with sort of a, a retirement, if you can call the departure of a guy who's 40 years old a retirement. I don't think he's uh, quite done yet. Uh, but I'm speaking of uh, Jim Blaine, who's the longtime chief of staff to Senate leader Phil Berger, uh, announced Friday, or Berger announced Friday, that uh, Blaine's uh, going to have his last session this session. Uh, he won't be coming back in uh, 2019. Uh, he's been with Berger, essentially the uh, the top lieutenant for uh, Senator Berger since 2011 when they took over. And prior to that, actually had a big role in Republicans taking control of the Senate in the first place uh, when he was working as the caucus director for Senate Republicans and getting their campaign operations to a point that they could actually uh, win enough seats from Democrats to uh, take control of the Senate. So he's been involved in things, everything from uh, budget meetings. Sometimes he's uh, Cooper, or, uh, Berger's, not Cooper's representative, <laughs> Berger's representative uh, in uh, key budget meetings with the House. Um, he's been involved in education policy as he was uh, briefly a uh, school teacher uh, in Granville County when he was uh, taking some time off from college uh, at UNC uh, and been involved in, in education policy. Also been involved in, in dealings with the media over the years. Uh, we've uh, gotten to know him well um, for some of his uh, media critiques as well as uh, letting us know what's uh, going on in the uh, world of uh, Senate Republicans. Um, so for all of that, um, 
we had a profile on him this week that you can go read at newsobserver.com. Um, but Jim Blaine is my headline of the week, and we'll see what he does from here. I'm sure we haven't heard the last of him. All right. Jim Blaine in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, and I'm going to go with Jim Blaine. So Colin is our winner this week. Um, he has been involved with uh, many, many issues that the legislature's uh, dealt with and has been uh, important in getting a lot of things uh, through in the, what, seven years since Republicans took over the legislature. Uh, so since he is on his way out, Jim Blaine is our headliner of the week. Uh, and that's it for Domecast. Uh, please catch us next week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.